they head back, let me encourage you, if you brought your scripture notebooks, to pull those out, and your Bibles, uh, if you brought them, or if you didn't bring them, they're in your pews in front of you to open to the book of James. So we're getting resettled, It'll be in chapter 2. Picking up in James 2, verse 14. And James is continuing to help us think about appearances. Beginning of James 2 last week, kind of wrestled with uh, our inability to see what God sees and to welcome what God welcomes and to worship in an authentic way. This morning, as, as Pete's already gotten us off to a great start with some, some visual images and ideas, what do we do when the appearance of something doesn't match its reality? How do we respond when something looks one way but turns out to be something different? One of my all-time favorite nonfiction books is uh, kind of like an extended essay by a woman named Annie Dillard. It's called A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And it's a, it's, it's a, a true account. It's, it's all sort of her experiences and um, questions and ideas. But in the first chapter of that book, Dillard describes going for a walk uh, in the woods. She's living in a cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia. This was back in the 70s. And on, on a January morning, she's going for this beautiful walk. She's seeing sort of signs of life, even though it's the middle of winter. And she's noticing all these frogs jumping into the, the stream as she walks past them. She walks out onto a small island in the middle of the stream, and as she gets to the edge of it, she sees a frog, a small frog there, right next to the bank. And she says, this small frog was exactly half in and half out of the water, looking like a schematic diagram of an amphibian, right? A picture-perfect frog, half in, half out of the water. And she says, you know, she, she was taken with this frog. She wanted to get up and see it more closely, so she crept closer. She crept closer to the frog, and the frog was perfectly still. The frog wasn't moving. She got a little closer, and still the frog didn't jump like all the other frogs that morning. She says, finally, she got, you know, just a foot or two away from this frog. And as she got close enough to really get a good look, she said the frog's body slowly crumpled. She says his skin then rose to the surface of the water and it lay like folds of bright scum at the top of the water. And then finally, several seconds later, she says this frog skin bag started to sink into the creek. She says what swam out from underneath the frog in that moment was what's called a giant water bug. That's its actual name. She'd never seen one before, but they are known to latch onto insects or amphibians. They inject their body with a poison that dissolves their muscle tissues and bones and literally drink the insides of the animal out, inside out. And she said that moment, that discovery of this frog, seemingly beautiful, seemingly picture perfect, seemingly solid frog, 
Discovering that he was nothing but a bag of skin, Dillard called a monstrous and terrifying experience. And the shock that she kind of carries back with her that morning causes her to ask all of these questions about, about reality versus appearance, about inconsistencies in the natural world that we discover. And she spends most of, of the rest of the book probing and, and seeking insight and understanding about these things. Well, taking a walk through the second chapter of James is also uh, not for the faint of heart, let's say. Because in James chapter 2, he wants to introduce us to, to specimens of religious faith, sort of like this frog, that are meant to be alarming, even monstrous or terrifying. He shows us ways that our worship or our faith might look solid, might appear satisfying when viewed from a distance. But when we get closer to it, when we get close enough to actually see what it is, some of these things can prove to be terrifyingly empty of real life. And so the question James, I think, is asking in James chapter 2 wants to ask us about the way our faith works. And is our faith, could we say that our faith is solid both inside and out? Is it consistent all the way through our being? So with that question in mind, let me pray for us as we open the word of God together. Lord Jesus, you uh, are the living word of God. You've given us your spirit quicken our hearts and to cause us to turn from death into your resurrection life. Lord, may we hear these words in faith. May we receive them. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of our hearts be full of faith and be pleasing to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, if you have your scripture notebooks, feel free to pull those out if you have your own notebook. Uh, we're, we're trying to practice this idea of writing out the passage as we hear it to help us kind of see how it fits together, to notice particular phrases and words, and maybe to come back to it and even continue to write it out during the week. So we'll start in verse 14 and go through 17 to start out this morning. Let me read for you as you copy. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I think James is the kind of guy that can smell a fake, we might say. 
Throughout chapter 2, he is concerned with helping us separate out kind of spiritual or religious wheat from the chaff. And he's asking these questions about what's pure, what's authentic, what's good, and what's worthless, what's lacking, what's dispensable, even what's insidious. And so starting here in verse 14, he wants to evaluate a particular claim. He wants to hold it up and say, what do we do with this? How do we value this? And the claim in verse 14 is from someone who says they have faith, they possess faith, but they don't have any deeds to go along with it. No concrete actions connected to that faith. And James asks, literally, of what worth? What good is this kind of faith? Does it have any value? He goes on to ask, does it have any power to save us? Possess that kind of strength. And so to help us evaluate that, James gives us another thought experiment. James is great at this. He gives us sort of a a real concrete example and says, well, what, what do you think? Given this situation, how would you answer? And that thought experiment is in verses 15 and 16. And he says, imagine that your faith community, right, that the the church or the community of, of believers you're a part of has someone in it who lacks adequate clothing and what, uh, what this verse calls um, daily food. Literally, it's the same phrase Jesus uses when he says, pray for your daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. Right? This particular brother or sister does not have that daily bread. James says, imagine that person being with you week in, week out, praying with you, studying scripture with you, worshiping alongside you. And yet week after week, you hear and see other brothers and sisters utter maybe subtle niceties. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Oh, you're hungry. But never doing anything to follow up. Never doing anything, James says, to supply what's actually needed. At the end of verse 16, James reiterates that question he asked in 14. What good is it? Of what value is is this kind of faith? And I think James is sort of imagining, well, ask the brother or sister in question here. How would they answer? Does that faith, quote unquote, a faith without deeds, does it have any power to save this person from exposure? Does it have any power to save them from, uh, from starvation? The question, what good is that kind of faith, of course, is rhetorical. The answer is implied. James has demonstrated that this definition, this kind of faith without deeds, is worthless. It's no good. It's it's a sham spirituality, James says. It's like Annie Dillard's frog. It's a corpse with no guts inside of it. And James wants us to see that when we separate faith from kind of this living pulse of mercy and love and relationship and action. James says when you disconnect those things in verse 17, faith is lifeless. It's as good as dead. 
So a question I might, I might have you star there at the end of 17 and think about this week is how do I see my faith working? If you asked yourself right now, as someone who believes and trusts in who Jesus Christ is, how do you see that faith working, acting, moving in your life? And if you're having trouble answering that, maybe ask someone close to you who knows you well. Where do you see faith acting, working, living in my life? Because I think it's a question that's important for us to ask. Now, most of us will probably concede James's point here at the beginning. That, that the church family, that the church body should be a place where, where we experience compassion and service and, and the meeting of needs. But I think he goes on to raise what, uh, or anticipate maybe, another kind of objection we might have. We might like to think, well, some of us are better at having faith, and others of us are better at meeting needs, serving, loving, active stuff. And couldn't we just say, well, let's have one group in the church do the, the spiritual, theological interior stuff and let another group in the church do the exterior work, quote-unquote, or, or, or active, loving neighbors kind of stuff. Why not just split the difference? James wants to, to speak to that potential objection in verses 18 through 20 and copy these with me. James says, but someone will say, there's always somebody, right? Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. This is James speaking. And I will show you my faith by my deeds. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. Verse 20, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? The translation in these three verses gets a little tricky, and, and, and a lot of that has to do with the way the, the sort of indirect or direct speech is handled in verse 18. Who's talking? What are they saying? What's, what's the argument or objection being raised? And part of the, the, the dilemma in translating these verses is that Koine Greek has no punctuation. It's just letter after letter after letter. There are no quotation marks. There aren't even commas or periods. So it's sort of left to the translator to, to fill that bit in. Commentator Douglas Moo suggests, and I think he's probably right, that verse 18 is meant to be understood in this way. It's meant to, to be an opponent, someone who would object to the kind of, of ideas James is putting forward about faith by saying this. What about having one person over here in a, in a church family, in a spiritual body, one person over here who claims to have faith and another over here who points to his deeds, right? Both are saying... This is, this is what my worship looks like. This is what my spirituality is about. One with faith, another with deeds. And the objector is saying, can James really demand 
that every Christian have both of these things? Isn't just one of them sufficient? To which James says, yep, I can. And let me show you why. Let me prove to you. Let me show you. And there's a big emphasis in these verses about the showing, the demonstration of this faith. In verse 18, the second half of that verse, he says the only way to show forth faith that's genuine and that's substantial is, is to show what comes out of it. As, as Pete you know, sort of illustrated this morning, what grows from that faith. And of course, that, that requires action. James says, otherwise, if we just say, well, it's enough to have faith, mere sort of assent or belief or awareness of God's reality. James says, if we use that definition of faith, then the demons in hell would qualify as our spiritual brothers and sisters. That's not a good spiritual company to be in fellowship with. Because the demons, they have faith, right? They believe God is real. They're aware of his presence. They would concede all of that as true. And yet they have no desire to obey, no desire to serve, no, no desire to be filled with the life of the God they're aware of. So James says, to limit faith to just belief, to only belief, is foolishness. And he he proves his point at the end of verse 20 with a little bit of a a pun, again, in the the original language. I think what he's saying at the end of verse 20 is, do you really need more evidence? Do you need me to show you even more that faith without deeds is useless? That last word in verse 20 is actually... a Greek phrase which is the kind of antonym for work. So maybe a more wooden translation is, do you need me to show you that faith without works is workless? Or that faith that has no works doesn't work? Is what James is saying. It's broken. It's lazy. It, it doesn't do the job. Faith that has no work, no life coming forth from it is workless. So let me invite you at the end of verse 22 there, sorry, verse 20, to circle that word useless. And this is maybe a more uncomfortable exercise for us. But are there places where you feel a disconnect between what you believe and what you see yourself doing or saying or valuing in your actions? Is there a place where these things don't fit well together? A place where, where faith feels like it's not working in you. So here in the first six or seven verses, in verses 14 through 17, James shows us a kind of faith that he calls dead or worthless. In verses 18 through 20, he shows us maybe another version of that faith That is foolish and workless. And the point James is is up to here, he's building us up not just to show us what doesn't work, but now he wants in verses 21 through 24 to to bring us to the payoff. He says, now with these kind of uh, false versions of faith out of the way, let me show you what genuine faith looks like. Faith that is working. Faith that is alive and kicking. Look at verses 21 Actually, all the way to 26. 
And if you need to give yourself permission not to copy some of this, <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot to keep up with. Um, you can read along and, and copy it out a little later. Verse 21, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And so the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies? And sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I think what James is hoping we catch here, that we get excited about, is that when faith and action come together, when they're brought into the same space within us, when by God's mercy those things are, are activated with one another, good stuff happens. Good fruit comes forth. And like any good rabbi or teacher of wisdom, James brings in legal precedents. Right? He goes back into the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and he says, here are examples to prove my point. This is what I'm talking about. This is what faith looks like. And he gives us two specific people and examples, the faith of Abraham and the faith of Rahab, which also happened to appear, both of these, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, right, as examples, as heroes of faith. And what James is interested in in both examples is to notice how their faith, how their belief, how their trust in God goes beyond just belief. It goes beyond just an awareness of God's existence. And in both cases, their belief in God causes them to take action. Their faith is expressed by taking risks, even. Verse 21, we're told Abraham expresses this kind of faith by bringing his son Isaac, right, the child of faith. That is given to him. He brings Isaac to the altar of faith as a sacrifice. And if you go back into Genesis, we're told that as Abraham did that, right, Abraham believed that God would supply the sacrifice. Jehovah Jireh, right, the Lord will provide the sacrifice needed. And in that trust, Abraham acted. His faith moved him forward. Abraham acted with faith brought together. So too, verse 25, in Rahab's case, right? Rahab and, and all the residents of Jericho, there was this awareness, there was this recognition, even fear of the living God that fell upon the city, Joshua tells us. But Rahab was unique in that the, the fear of, of God coming, the presence of, 
of God, the reality of God, was, was then followed up with the faith, the action of Rahab. To first offer safety to the spies, and then to give them passageway out of the city. Right? Rahab brought these things together. And the point James is saying is not to deny the necessity of faith, even the primacy of faith, but rather to insist that when faith is alive, it does something to us. As verse 22 puts it, faith, meaning trusting belief in God, faith is meant to work together with the rest of life, with our actions. James says they're partners that work together. They grow us. They mature us. They lead us to completion. And and he's using a lot of the same language that that came up back in chapter 1, verse 4. Remember that finish line of faith? He says, all the stuff that you're going through, all the things you're enduring, they're meant to, to develop a kind of faith in you that's mature and complete and lacks nothing. It's the same thing here. Faith and and work together are meant to bring us to that place of completeness. To mature us, to grow us, to make us more fully alive in Christ Jesus. And so all of that then kind of comes to a head, I think, in verse 24. Where James says this, A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith. Only or faith alone. Now that's pretty clearly James's argument, but it might sit a little funny with some of us. We might be a little uncomfortable in the way James has put this, because if you've hung out in the New Testament for any length of time, if you've spent time reading Paul's letters, for example, like Romans or Galatians, there there appear to be some what might sound like contradictory things being said. James very clearly says here in chapter 2, righteousness is about faith and what we do. These two things working together. But Romans 3.28, Paul says, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so the question is, well, are they contradicting each other? Are these two apostles in the early church fighting about this? And there are literally thousands of pages devoted to this particular question, trying to reconcile. But I've got about two minutes to give you my my answer, because that's what we have time for this morning. Let me say, I do not think they are in contradiction with one another. I think they both have a healthy sense that, that faith is both deep, trusting belief and gift, and it's also something that produces action and obedience, and fruitfulness. But I think maybe the the best way to think about what they're talking about is that they're warning us against errors in opposite directions. Things we need to be aware of in, in two different ways. The great church historian Philip Schaff puts it this way. He says, James is saying faith is dead without works. Faith is dead without works. That's James's point. Paul is saying works are dead without faith. Faith is dead without works. Works are dead without faith. One insists on a working faith. 
He says, the other on faithful works, and both are right. Again, they, they go together. To maybe take that application one step further, it might be helpful to think about the different ways faith is presented in, in Paul and James. By, by thinking about them as emphasizing maybe like two different points on a timeline in, in the, the lifespan of a believer. Theologian Frances Gensch puts it this way. She says, Paul, it's like Paul is dealing with obstetrics. Paul is telling us about how new life begins in us. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics. He's telling us how the Christian life grows and matures and ages within us. In other words, right, there's, there's no righteousness, no work of our own that we can do to produce or precede faith. We're not saved, we're not born again by any action of our own. Right? Faith is the gift of God to us. But once the Spirit has quickened that faith, once it's alive in us, then James comes in and says, we should expect to see fruit. We should expect to see action. We should allow for this robust growth of faith in the life of the believer. And even Paul, I think, says very much the same thing in the the fifth chapter of Galatians. He says, the only thing that counts, not circumcision and all these other places of standing in the law, the thing that counts is faith literally working itself out. Same verb group here. Expressing itself through love. So how do we put these things in concert with one another? That's the, that's the question I would leave you with this week. So if, if you want to take this passage and, and, and put it into your prayer life, here are the three questions uh, I'd leave you with, two of which we've already spoken about. One, where do you see your faith working? Where can you see the Holy Spirit growing in you, your obedience? Number two, are there places where faith and action are disconnected? And you know it, you feel it, you sense that disconnection. Thirdly, how does Jesus want to connect those things for you? How could you pray and say, Lord, I, I long for maturity and completion and growth. Help me connect these things in my life.